Will you join me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, uh, we thank you that Jesus is enough. We thank you that we are loved. We thank you that we are held. We thank you that we are strong when we are weak. We thank you that we are worthy in Christ and that you are enough. And we thank you, God, for the opportunity um, just to gather like we are this morning to consider those things, to be reminded of those things that unfortunately we just sometimes only know with our head, but we don't experience it with our hearts. And we pray, God, that by your spirit this morning that is living and moving and breathing among us and walking among us, that you would make those truths that we know and that come from your word, that you would lift them out of your word, pour them into our lives, Lord, and that we would be sent out from here different people because we were reminded of your love and your truth and your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. You can turn to John 17, and uh, for those joining us um, for the first time, or if you've missed some Sundays, as Glenn mentioned, uh, this fall we have been focusing on the values of the kingdom of God. Uh, The kingdom of God is a very common religious term that the Bible speaks of frequently and the church talks about all the time. But we but we need to speak about it more specifically. But generally, it speaks of God's rule over all aspects of life that he desires to grow and advance in this world through his people, his rule. And wherever we are in our journey with God, we know, we know intuitively what many of those values are because we have been designed to experience them. So everyone desires to receive and give love. Everyone has a concept of justice that they want to experience, however they may define it. And everyone wants to be free. Free from fear, from anxiety, from oppression, from poverty, from slavery, from conflict, from judgment. Everybody wants to be free. Everybody wants to be free to flourish, however we may define that. We were created for that. All humanity desires that. And the values of God's rule, his kingdom, are all about humanity flourishing as God intended when he created humanity to be a display of who he is. And they're all based on what God has revealed to us in the scriptures. So that's our center for understanding. We all desire those things. All humanity wants those things. And the scripture reveals specifically what they're about. That's our center. And seeking God together is what is necessary to grow and advance in that direction. And that's what we've been talking about the past few weeks. And that brings us to a few thoughts this morning about nurturing relationships. And the moment we talk about relationships, we talk about community. And the whole story of the Bible is about relationships and community. And it begins before we ever existed or before the world existed with the eternal community of God. Father, 
Son, and Holy Spirit that is our model for relationships and community. So we reflect here and stop for a moment because that is our example in the scriptures and what we were designed for. So in John 17, we have the most extensive and intimate prayer of Jesus in the Bible. Do we realize that? Were Jesus' words to his father, we have a glimpse into what was on his heart. And we want to read, just, we're, not going to read, we're not going to read the whole chapter, but I'm going to set the context in the first uh, five verses where we read. You can follow along. You can either turn on your Bibles or open your Bibles, however you do, do that. John 17, verses 1 to 5. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to him, all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus is praying in anticipation of his work on the cross whose time had come to pay for all the evil, all the sin, all the injustice in the world brought about by humanity's sin. He's probably praying this on the night before his crucifixion. He's anticipating also his resurrection, returning to the Father in heaven with the glory he had before coming to the earth, returning to his Father into that, what we're going to see just in a moment, into that dance of the Trinity, which is reflected in the image that you see. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect relationship with one another, reunited, um, just the way, which is our model for what he calls us to. But the difference is, after his work on the cross in history, 2,000 years ago, after that work on the cross to redeem all things, he will launch his kingdom that we're talking about. And he will send his, out his people to reflect him well in the world wherever he's called us to live life. So we, we read in verse 18, as you sent me into the world, Jesus says, I also have sent them into the world. That's got to be one of the most astonishing verses in all of the scripture where Jesus compares us and being sent into the world, wherever that is, wherever he's called us to live and work and spend our hours, he compares that to him being sent into the world. That's enough to ask ourselves, where are the comparisons? What what does that look like for me being sent compared to how Jesus was sent? We bring his love, his forgiveness, his justice, his shalom in a world that is broken just as he was sent to provide redemption for all that. And that brings us to the theme of Jesus' requests to the Father for his followers, which constitute the bulk of this prayer. And it's rather interesting what he prays for. Look at verse 11 and then following. Verse 11 first. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, 
that they may be one even as we are. Look at verses 20 and 21. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, which meant the disciples that were right there, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that's us, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Look at verses 22 and 23. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. That's another one of those astonishing statements, my friends, that you can't just let go. The glory that the Father gave the Son, he says, I have given to them. What does that mean? We'll come back to that. That they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Four times, Jesus prays that his people would be one as they are one. So Jesus is speaking about a community of faith that in some imperfect and defective way, because of the presence of sin in us, But nonetheless, he's speaking of a faith community set apart in the truth that he talks about in verse 17. Set them apart in the truth because your word is truth. A community of faith that mirrors the unity and diversity of the Trinity. Three persons and loving relationship, one God. And Jesus gives the underlying reason for all of this the big so that and it's incredible my friends so that the world may know that the father sent the son the world may know that you love them as much as you love me jesus says and it's the same idea as by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another and i find it very interesting as someone who works in the industry of global work and bringing the message to the whole world, I find it very interesting that Jesus doesn't say that the whole world may know by you going out and telling the whole world. Not that we don't do that. I find it very interesting that Jesus says that the greatest apologetic, that the Father sent the Son, and that the reality of everything he's talking about is the unity of the body of Christ manifested through their love. Incredible. What does that look like? What does that look like? What does that love of the Trinity look like? Well, imagine. Imagine a community of perfect relationships without a hint of competitiveness. Each absolutely delights in the other. Showing them off. Showing them off. That's, that's, the, that's our language for what it means when the Father glorifies the Son and the Son glorifies the Father. They're showing one another off. They're displaying one another to each other and the beauty of them in a dance with no fear to be themselves because of their absolute goodness. Tim Keller describes it this way. The life of the Trinity is characterized not by self-centeredness, but by mutually self-giving love. When we delight and serve someone else, we enter into a dynamic orbit around him or her. 
We center on the interests and desires of the other. So it is, the Bible tells us. Each of the divine persons centers upon the others. None demands that the others revolve around him. Each voluntarily circles the other two, pouring love, delight, and adoration into them. Each person of the Trinity loves, adores, and defers to, and rejoices in the others. And the early Greek fathers would refer to this with the Greek word, I can barely say, perichoresis, but if you, see, but if you listen closely to that word, it's the word from which we get choreography. And what's the beauty of choreo- Choreography or ballet, those kinds of things. What's the beauty of it? You have everyone participating in a dance, but it's not just an individual doing their own thing. It's everybody participating in a dance to tell a story. All together to tell one story. And they all do it together. The dance of the Trinity. And God creates humanity distinct from everything else in the universe so that he can invite them to the joy of that community, to the joy of that dance, because they display who he is being made in his image. We have no higher dignity, no higher identity than that. And then many places in the Bible describe the community of God's people as characterized by this unity amidst diversity, where people walk with humility, with gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance, serving one another. And we resonate with those communities when we taste it, wherever that is, whether that's here in church, which we would hope that it would be, but unfortunately, it's not always that way, and we know that, know that all too well. Whether that be in your table group at a, at, at a, at a Bible study, or at mom's, or at, or at, or at a, in, a, in a seminar, whether that, be at, whether that be in your work community, whether that be in your family, whether that be with a couple of other people that you meet with regularly to share life. We know that when we taste that community, it resonates in us, and it's the most beautiful thing that there is. Why? We were created for that because that mirrors who God is. What keeps a church from being the Trinity-resembling community that Jesus prayed for? Well, I'm going to move forward with the presupposition that we all know that this world doesn't work right. And that there is injustice, wrong, evil, sin, whatever we want to call it, out there because it's in here. And just for clarity, it's not just in Washington, D.C. When I was in Italy, we say it's not just in Rome, it's in here. And what's in here is an innate commitment to ourselves to make life work. It's commonly called selfishness or more descriptively self-protection. Apart from God, we want to protect ourselves from a world that doesn't work. By nature, we protect ourselves from the displeasures, the discomfort, the confusion, and pain of this world. We want to protect our image, what people think of us, our time, and our space. We want to protect our comfort zone and to avoid discomfort and hurt. Because we all know it's easier to live at a distance which is the opposite of the community that Jesus describes. Now, self-protection is not all wrong. We do love ourselves. 
And remember what Jesus says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. He gave that as a given. We love ourselves. We want to protect ourselves. It's wrong when it violates the well-being of another. It's wrong when it violates love to another. Another presupposition. We are often blind to our self-protective behaviors because they are innate and we've learned them well. We've learned them well also depending on how much we've had to protect ourselves from the brokenness of life. And our upbringings and the way we've learned those things have everything to do with the way we relate to others and the way we love others and the difficulty we have for that. It has everything to do with that. We're a broken people and it begins early in life. How do they play out in our relationships? How do these self-protective behaviors play out in our relationships? So I'd like to share a few ways that I think we've all experienced in ourselves or through others, ways that the self-protective behaviors provoke tensions, conflicts, and always distance in our relationships. And that's the best case. Because the worst case is racism, hatred, murder, adultery, evil that destroys relationships. Which incidentally, my friends, that is the battle, spiritual battle we're in. And that's Satan's agenda. As God created us together to resemble and invite him, us to his community, Satan's agenda, Genesis 3, Satan's agenda is to destroy relationships or to put as much distance in them as he can. Keep that in mind as we move along and keep that in mind for who we are and all the relationships that you're in and where Satan wants to hit. Number one. We can be easily offended, bothered by what people say and do. Amen? <laughs> Has to do with insecurity that we like, we like to talk about. The fear, the anxieties of how people or circumstances may affect us. What people think of our performance in a performance and works-driven society. We can't avoid that. We live in that. Our insecurity involves wanting the approval, the acceptance of others, and fearful of not having it. Which means that we all need to grow in our security in who we are in God. And that God is good all the time. Every time I think of Robin Marker, who is with Jesus now, her recurring refrain amidst all that she did, God is good. God is good all the time. It was her unshakable faith that brought her through and that made her glow in her testimony while she was suffering in the only ways that the Spirit can produce. And our insecurity, my friends, that we all experience in different ways and in different circumstances, our insecurity has everything to doubt with not believing in God's goodness and his acceptance and the love and everything we just sang about. And we also understand that the fears associated and the anxiety associated with depression that characterizes so many in our society and that we have to encounter can also be connected to physiological reasons. And the classical example of that is Elijah, 
So in Elijah, so in 1 Kings 18, we read of the wonderful story of Elijah's confrontation with the 400 prophets of Baal and how he called down fire from heaven to wipe up the sacrifice that he did after pouring water on it. Great victory, great spiritual victory. Jezebel, the queen, gets the ear of it. And in verse 19, Jezebel says, you tell Elijah this, so may the gods do to me if you aren't like them by this time tomorrow. (laughs) And Elijah is scared out of his wits and flees. Flees and and runs and, and doesn't stop running. He flees. And then he and finally when he does stop and he's weary, he says, Enough, Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. That immediately followed the spiritual victory that he had right before that. And how did he go on? Well, God sent an angel and he gave him food and drink and rest. And the scripture says he went in the strength of that food. He went and and he went 40 days to Mount Horeb. 40 days he went in the strength of the food. But it just highlights, it highlights how we can go here to here and how our physiological reasons can all bear in on that. And we could go on from that. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We all remember that. He suffered a depression in the Garden of Gethsemane looking towards the cross. His spirit, his emotions, he was, he was oppressed by the thought of that. And he did not sin. Secondly, we have a tendency towards strong opinions and dogmatism when issues are not biblical absolutes or black and white. We all understand gray areas and the potential to feel very strongly about gray areas. And this has gone on for as long as we have walked the earth. I would say from Genesis 3 on. And the classic example of the New Testament is Romans 14, where issues of lifestyle between the strong Jewish minority in the Roman church that wanted to observe days and dietary restrictions and things like that, things that belonged to the law, even though they were believers, and, and, the, and the larger non-Jewish majority that didn't care about those things, Paul had to write about how you deal about those gray areas in the kingdom of God. At communion, we read Ephesians 4, 4 to 6. There was one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who was over all and through all and in all. Very interestingly, the sevenfold, the sevenfold unities of the faith, very interestingly, throughout church history, Christians have argued, fought, sometimes killed, and separated over at least four of these seven uni- four of these unities. They've done that over the spirit. Well, how does the spirit work? What gifts does he give? And how, the, how, how does he work in us? What, they, we fought over the hope. How is Jesus going to come back? We fought over baptism. 
who gets baptized, how do we get baptized, what mode do we use, all distinctives of theological systems that people, that God bless them, the reformers and all that were heritage here, uh, they raise to the level of Scripture. And throughout church history, throughout church history, they have been fought over. And they have separated believers. The dogmatism with which people have held theological systems has contributed much to the divisions of the church. And harshness can even be expressed when it is a black and white issue of truth. So in the ABF, there has been much teaching about the necessity over and over again. We hear it every Sunday about grace and truth being together. And that's why it's a beautiful thing, can't wait, beautiful thing to join with other churches of perhaps different theological traditions to worship and pray and collaborate together. That is an incredibly beautiful perfume in the nostrils of God. But it's not limited to biblical issues. There's politics. The dogmatism and arrogance with which views can be expressed is on all sides. I'll never forget, never forget... In we were teaching English in our church plant in Italy where the church plant was right in the university city of Milan. And we were doing English conversation. We had professors there, students there, teachers there, people from, people from the neighborhood come in. And we were doing it on all different kinds of subjects. And they mentioned to us, whatever you do, whatever you do, don't talk about politics. Somehow or another, we got on it because it was in the midst of an election, and you've heard of Berlusconi and those guys there, and rich billionaire. Uh, We got talking about that, and lo and behold, by the end of the class, people were mad at one another and left. They warned me. Why is that? Why is that? Somehow, at a bottom line level, we must ask ourselves the question, Why do I feel so strongly about this when other equally intelligent and godly people think differently? I believe often there's pride, thinking our way, our opinion, our viewpoint is the only way. And that's tied to fear. Thinking differently, being open and willing to change can be scary because it disrupts the status quo, the certainty we are used to, and there's confusion in that. And no one likes confusion and uncertainty. And all change brings confusion and uncertainty. And so we can hold on to our opinions very strongly to protect our sense of stability and certainty. There can also be idolatry involved, looking to the status quo, the way we look at things for our own security. I work for Crossworld. When Crossworld left this area that they were for more than 50 years and moved out to the Midwest, you wouldn't believe some of the things that were said. Why are you leaving this area, this metro area, where there's so much history and and culture and educational opportunities, all this thing to go out to the cornfields? The cornfields, yes, Allison, the cornfields of Missouri. (laughs) Why are you doing that? Turns out it was one We haven't always made good decisions, but it's one of the best decisions they ever made. They did that because God led them in that, but you wouldn't believe that. So what did they do? They had to bring in organizations to give us seminars on change. How do you handle change? More than once they did that because it was very, very hard for people. Thirdly, 
We fail to lovingly deal with hard things in our relationships. Very simply, because we don't want the loving confrontation that it may entail, because it's scary. We want to protect ourselves from the discomfort of dealing with difficult issues and flawed people at all levels. And that is part of the church's story of the last century in failing to lovingly enter into conversation and dialogue regarding the issues of the day. Gabe Lyons has written, Christianity has gained more conversions in America over the last 200 years than any other faith. Simultaneously, Christianity has steadily lost cultural influence despite its rapid conversion growth. And all of these things were mentioned, there's the need for repentance but we're going to go on. What promotes a nurturing community? And if you gave the Sunday school answer of saying, Jesus, that would be correct. Jesus promotes a nurturing community. And the first thing we notice is satisfaction in Jesus. And this, you can turn over a few pages to John 7, where we look at a familiar invitation of Jesus. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. The Old Testament speaks about God satisfying our thirst and all about the sins of Israel being rooted in digging wells that can't hold water and can't satisfy our thirst. So Jeremiah says, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewn for themselves cisterns that can't hold water. All humanity without God does that. They look for other places to satisfy their thirst for the most important things in life. And, we, and, and we, we do that as well to the extent that Jesus is not our all in all. He's the God who invites us to be satisfied in him with the delights of his life that he offers us. And we begin here so that we don't look to other people, circumstances, and things in the church and outside the church to give us the significance, the security, and the ultimate love that we all need. And if we want to understand where it is that Jesus is not our all in all, we need to look at what pushes our buttons and sends us off kilter and makes us upset. Now, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily wrong to react strongly about something. There's something wrong when we don't react to injustices and wrong that we encounter where God calls us to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with him. But when Jesus is satisfying us, he says, from our innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And what is that? What is the glory that God, Jesus has given us that the God gave Jesus? That's his spirit. That's the love of God that has been, and his spirit, Paul says, is the love of God that has been poured to overflowing in our hearts through the spirit. When we come to Jesus, Jesus says his love out of our hearts, out of our innermost being, his love will flow out to others. And so he basically said, so we say, go to him often, come to him often. Because what happens when that happens is we will begin to experience the fruit of the spirit. The love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control that is only fruit. We can't work at it. It is Jesus satisfying us. And that brings us to the second invitation of Jesus, the gentleness of Jesus. It's one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture. Always gets me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls. That always gets to me. That always gets to me. James 3 says, Who is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. The wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, and easily entreated, willing to yield, because that invites people to relationship. And the opposite is true. The opposite of gentleness, harshness, strength exercised without compassion, pushes people away at every level, at a one-on-one level, as well as national levels, as well as international levels. And the extent to which we are gentle and gracious towards those near us, particularly when not treated well, reflects the extent to which we have been touched by the gentleness and graciousness of Jesus being satisfied in him. Think of the people that you want to be around because you feel safe, you feel at ease and free to be yourself without a mask because of the peace and gentleness you feel. It was said of Jesus in Isaiah, quoted in Matthew, he will not, I love this, he will not quarrel or cry out a bruised reed he will not break off and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory and in his name the peoples will hope. Jesus was the supreme example of gentleness and the most powerful person who ever walked the face of the earth. Thirdly, look at people the way God looks at us. Has everything to do with personally experiencing God's delight towards us. We all know God loves us. We sing it all the time. We read it all the time in the Bible. We hear it. We, we, we hear it. We, we just hear things. We see it on billboards in Lancaster, maybe around here. I'm not sure. We all know God loves us. We all know that. It's another thing, my friends, for us to experience. And I say this, I say this myself so much, all of this. It's another thing to personally experience on our skin, to personally experience God delights in me. Sometimes the word love is too general. It's about experiencing God's delight and dance for us. And the image that comes to mind is in Luke of the prodigal son of where, where, this, where the scripture says, while he, the prodigal, was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. What does it look like to delight in others like that? The way God delights in us. To look at people that way. Fourthly, seek God about who he wants you to lovingly invest in. Most of what we are talking about and have been talking about are issues of trust and belief and who we are in Jesus and, be, and, and, and reflecting on that and understanding and reveling in our identity in Christ. And that, that will be reflected in our relationships. This is a very practical do and takeaway. 
It can only be a few. It can only be a few seeking God about who he wants you to lovingly invest in. And it will require prioritization of your life regarding your involvements in activities and programs of all sorts which aren't bad, but so that you have time for people. So that you have time to invite that neighbor. So that you have time to come alongside that person after hours at work. The person that you want to love on, that God is leading you to. First in your family. That's up there. First in your family. Then where you work or live. Who you rub shoulders with 40 to 50, 60 hours a week. That's who God has called you to. And then when you've determined that, very simply practice hospitality. And we, all, and we remember that the word hospitality in the scriptures is literally the word that means love of the stranger. We practice that. That's a command in the scriptures. And the, somewhat the church has gotten away from that a good bit. Hospitality is one of the primary virtues of the Christian church in the early centuries that set them apart and contributed to its explosive growth, particularly in times of epidemics, of the plagues, where they nursed people and served them at the risk of their own lives. And, and the secular, the, the emperors would make note of the, of the Galileans, they called them, the Christians who did this to the disgrace of their own people when the Christians did that and provided those social services that the government didn't. Now, we won't go there in that discussion. (laughs) Nurturing relationships inevitably happens through our words, and words inevitably are the result of what is in our hearts. That's why we consider and have been considering what's in our hearts and who we are trusting for our ultimate love, security, and meaning in life because it will come out in our words which are the vehicle for our relationships. It will come out in our words and the extent to which we treat others with gentleness, looking at them the way God does. I close with a testimony from Corey ten Boom who survived a death camp in Ravensbrück in Germany during the Holocaust and who wrote The Hiding Place, made a movie out of it. Um, She gave this testimony, or part of it, to the Lausanne Conference in 1974 to a global gathering of hundreds of global leaders about taking the gospel and taking the life of Jesus to the world. And she writes, I love the Germans. There is not a country like it where I work with such great joy. My greatest friends live in that country, but sometimes I find people who have been cruel to me in the concentration camp. Once I saw a lady in the meeting, and suddenly I thought that woman was was the nurse who was so cruel to my dying sister. And there came hatred and bitterness in my heart. But when I felt that there was hatred and bitterness in my heart, I knew I had not forgiven her. And, I know, and you know that Jesus has said, if you do not forgive those who have sinned against you, my heavenly Father will not forgive your sins. But I said, O oh Lord, I cannot, I am not able. 
And suddenly I saw it. I cashed the check of Romans 5.5. I said, thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have brought into my heart God's love through the Holy Spirit who is given to me. And thank you, Father, that your love in me is stronger than my bitterness and hatred. I could go to that nurse and I could shake hands with her and I had the joy to be used by the Lord to bring her to this decision for the Lord Jesus. What a joy. John Bunyan made a very good little poem. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Isn't that good? I like that. When the Lord says, love your enemies, he gives you the love that he demands from you. One of the most cruel things I've suffered was when in the concentration camp, we had to stand naked. They stripped us of all our clothing, and I said to Betsy, my sister, I cannot bear this. This is so terrible. But it was suddenly as if I saw Jesus at the cross. It was the Holy Spirit who turned my eyes to Jesus. And the Bible tells that he hung there naked. They stripped him of all his garments, and he hung there for me. By my suffering, I could understand a fraction of the suffering of Jesus. And it made me so happy, so thankful that I could bear my suffering. The Holy Spirit will turn your eyes to Jesus, whatever happens, and then we are ready. We are even willing and we are able to suffer. Amy Carmichael has written, We have a scarred captain. Should not we have scars? Under his mighty banners, we are going to the wars. Lest we forget, Lord, when we meet, show us your hands and feet. And may the love, mercy, and power of Jesus Christ be multiplied to you during this time of titanic spiritual warfare. The Lord wins and is able to hold us up and cause us to triumph in all situations that we may have to face. Hallelujah. Jesus was victor, he is victor, and he will be victor. Amen. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is the heaven. God, we pray that we would turn our eyes to you and find that you are enough as we sang before and that as we are sent forth from this place, you will fill us and you will shine through us as we are satisfied in you. 